Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And this is a special edition of the podcast. We're doing something that we have done only rarely before. We are going to share an interview that that Jack and I did elsewhere. And the reason that we're sharing it is because I think we both thought it was pretty amazing. And long. Really, <laughs> really long. So, Jack, I think you need to just give people a sense of what they are in for, how long, how broad, how deep. <laughs> well, you know how sometimes you're on not a road trip, but like a lengthy drive, and you think it's too short for an audiobook, but it's too long for even a few of my favorite podcasts. Have you heard? Well, what you're looking for is an episode clocking in at about 100 minutes. And we've got that for you. How broad? Really broad. How deep? Also really deep. You know, sometimes there's a trade-off there. Mile wide and an inch deep or a post hole where, you know, you're really narrow and really focused and in-depth. This is everything. Everything you need right here. Well, you really sold it, Jack. So, so just... Just to explain what we're talking about, Jack and I had the opportunity to do an interview with Daniel Denver, who is the host of an amazing podcast called The Dig. And the reason it's called The Dig is because he he goes he really digs in to topics about politics and history. And he's also a former education reporter. So we covered a lot of ground in this interview. And I think that, Jack, we we both felt like we had an opportunity to, one, really get into things that we care about, um, but also to start to stitch together some of the themes that we have been developing on this show. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's right. And Maybe it's okay to reveal to listeners that you and I are working on a new book and that it actually felt like sort of a test drive of some of the ideas that we are working on for the book. And just a quick reminder before we get to the main event, if you appreciate our work, I hope you'll consider supporting the podcast on Patreon. This is an entirely listener-supported project. And if you go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, you can join the ranks of those supporters. You get a custom reading list to go along with every episode, including this one. And right now, if you join at the $10 per month level, you get a complimentary copy of the new paperback edition of our book, A Wolf at the schoolhouse door. All right. Well, as tempting as it is to just hang out here with you and chat, Jack, I, I think we better just cut to the chase because our listeners have a lot of listening to do. A lot of digging to do. Jack Snyder and Jennifer Berkshire, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Good to be here. Education politics have been moving really fast since you first published your book in 2020. You note in the new preface that it, quote, makes no mention of critical race theory, gender ideology, or grooming. What do you make of this renewed culture war suddenly emerging with the gender, sexuality, race themes that it's had at the moment that it did, and in particular, 
targeting public education and teachers in the way that it has. Looking back, I'm kind of amazed at how oblivious we were because we have really seen, we've seen similar moves really decade after decade that that sometimes they're in response to the speed of cultural change. But what our book was really pointing out was, hey, you know, there are these really deep pocketed conservative funders and groups that do not like public education. And they have been out there in the background for a long time and they see an opening. And so now, you know, when, when the culture wars erupt, often inflamed by these same people in these same groups who see this moment as an opportunity to drive forward their vision of a particular variety of school choice, a very radical vision of school choice. You know, I don't think we should have been surprised given that we were trying to open people's eyes to the presence and influence of these folks, that they would really take advantage of the sort of deep divides in our country and see that as just an enormous opportunity. Yeah, I think that we, in some ways, were just early on this. We were on this story before it was a story. And what has emerged is the sort of second group in a marriage of convenience here. The first group is the group that we wrote about in the book. And these are folks who are, you know, not all market fundamentalists, but really that's what underlies the push to dismantle public education. That's that's where the deep pockets are, right? They believe that schools shouldn't be governed through democratic politics, right? That they should be directed by the invisible hand of the free market. And that's where these policy ideas flow from, right? That you need to deregulate education, you need to privatize education, you need to break unions, profit is totally acceptable, competition is absolutely fundamental, nothing is good unless the customer declares it so, right? These are sort of Betsy DeVosian positions. And then in this marriage of convenience, there's another group that I've recently started calling Christian nationalists. And it's really a marriage of convenience that works for both groups. Because on the one hand, the market fundamentalists get all of this grassroots support, right? There isn't grassroots support for defunding public education. That is not what this other group, which again, I'm going to call Christian nationalists, um, that's, that's not their primary concern. Their primary concern is that they want to shift students out of public schools and into private schools, which is absolutely necessary if what you want is to pursue this religious worldview through education, right? You need to do that to get out from under regulation, to get out from uh, teacher training requirements, textbook review, curricular standards, the well-established legal rights that students have in schools. And that is why you see the pairing right now of vouchers, which we're seeing in every state with a conservative majority in the state legislature, right? That's where you're seeing a pairing of vouchers with anti-CRT policies, anti-trans legislation, because what you're trying to do there 
is rally the grassroots support, which is largely about culture war. And again, can I think be captured by Christian nationalism, especially if you take a pretty expansive view of the word Christian there, and certainly a racist and homophobic uh, understanding of the word Christian there, right? That it's about advancing a, a white, male-dominated, cis worldview that is also rooted in Protestant and probably evangelical Christianity in the minds of most of those folks, right? That's the grassroots. And if you compare that with the top-down, deep-pocketed policy influence of the market fundamentalists, now you've got a movement. And and it's a movement that is destined to to fail eventually, right? The, The interests there have converged for the moment, but they're too different. They will eventually move their different ways and, and fracture that movement. Unfortunately, you know, I think they're with us for the next several years, and they've done so much damage so quickly that unless there is a really spirited, well-organized defense pretty immediately, it won't matter that this coalition of market fundamentalists and Christian nationalists isn't built to last because the aim of the market fundamentalists will have been realized, right? This, this half trillion dollar thing we do every year, providing a free public education to every young person in America, regardless of their paperwork, will be over. During the the education wars of a decade ago, bipartisan corporate ed reformers would stigmatize teachers for failing poor students of color. That was sort of the standard line. But today, the conservative line is that teachers are grooming students to be gay or trans and teaching them to hate white people through through critical race theory. Did Did that earlier moment of kind of more mainstream bipartisan teacher demonization lay the groundwork for for what we've been seeing recently? I started writing about education at that, you know, sort of peak Obama education reform movement. And this really pretty astonishing coalition of people had come together around this idea that that if you could just get better teachers in front of kids, this was going to be the thing that lifted a generation up out of poverty. And by better teachers, they they meant specifically teachers who were not in unions. And so when I would hear these these talking points I you know I was astonished that that one you would be hearing democrats lining up behind you know what were so clearly sort of conservative and anti-union beliefs but also the extent to which they were just you know they wanted to to just completely drop any you know any understanding of class understanding of history and that we were going to have this very sort of, you know, like transactional fix that if we change the management structure of schools and we got, you know, younger teachers who were willing to work harder and the theory of change would get more and more elaborate. I um, mean, you could kind of picture these guys all sitting around in, in a conference room at, you know, the Gates Foundation or one of these many, many other groups running their logic models. And so, you know, they would talk themselves into things like, well, so if you could just get a really good teacher and we would measure, we knew how good the teacher was was by how much he or she was able to raise student test scores. And, you know, that was going to be the thing 
kids would end up earning more over their lifetimes. And this was so great that, well, it didn't really matter how big the class was because a really good teacher could teach a whole bunch of kids. And this was great because it wouldn't cost as much. And so we could win over people to our coalition who didn't want to spend more on schools. And so you would watch this narrative get, you know, sort of more and more elaborate and frankly, ridiculous. And then, you know, just unbelievable policy changes in its wake. And so all these laws that punish schools and teachers for, say, failing to close the achievement gap, the racial achievement gap, are still on the books in all these states, even as a state like Florida, for example, Ron DeSantis's education advisors want him to make illegal the collection of data that tracks race and gender. And so it shows you what a crazy moment we're in. But also you're, you know, you are exactly right that we got so used to hearing a certain kind of bipartisan teacher bashing that it really paved the way for what's happening now. If you think about what market fundamentalists need to sell the public on in order to advance their vision of what education should look like five years from now or 10 years from now or maybe tomorrow, um, and if you think about the things that are conducive to the kinds of Christian nationalist arguments that we're hearing right now that really aid that ultimate market fundamentalist vision, Right, the things that you need to convince people of are, in many ways, teacher-related. Right, so market fundamentalists need to convince people that a gig worker can replace your child's current teacher. That is a hard argument to make. Right, if you believe in teacher professionalism, if you have had positive interactions with your child's teacher, right, if you had a positive experience yourself with teachers in school. It's going to be hard to make the case that what we ought to do is pay teachers less. We don't need folks to stay in the classroom long term. An algorithm actually might be a decent replacement. Let's just get kids on Chromebooks for most of the day. That's a hard argument to make. It's also a hard argument to make if what you want is to use culture war to try to build grassroots support for what is ultimately a pretty unpopular idea, which is to privatize and dismantle public education, then what you need to be able to do is convince people that their kids are at risk right now in schools, in the hands of educators who, you know, are Marxist is a classic one, right? Um, sexually exploitive is a classic one. And so, it really is conducive to those kinds of arguments that we had, you know, a quarter century of bipartisan consensus around teacher bashing, right? You cannot tell the difference between George W. Bush and Barack Obama when it comes to talk about teachers. And when conservatives wanted to begin advancing this agenda, they were able to land these ideological airplanes on a runway built by Democrats. That you think about all the work Barack Obama did to convince us that educators are self-interested, that their unions are like the mafia, that actually we can you know, use technologies like value-added measures to figure out where the good teachers are, that they should be exposed to markets through things like you know, um, pay-for-performance schemes. All of that 
really plays into the hands of culture warriors on the right, as well as market fundamentalists who want to say, listen, what's happening right now doesn't work. Educators are ill-intended, their unions protect them, and ultimately your kid would be better served if you, the parent, had control over just you know, moving your kid around in a free market. That is one of the, the biggest mistakes that anybody, you know, right, left, or center, made between about 1990 and you know, 2016 if they support public education. And I think a lot of them do, right? I think, I think Barack Obama supports the idea of public education, but I think he also did not think very carefully about how undermining educators and their unions would be used by people who have an ideological motive, right? Who have an end game that is not about like, well, maybe let's let's peel back some of the tenure protections that, you know, can possibly be problematic. And I would actually dispute that. But like, if that's your position, right, the idea that maybe that's the end game is pretty naive. Yeah. I mean, the Democratic Party stigmatizing teachers and, and dismantling teachers unions makes as much electoral sense as Republicans insulting Christianity or going after evangelical churches. And yet, that's precisely what Democrats participated in. Right, right, right. It, it's like it's like they had no idea that <laughs> educators historically had voted Democrat. It's like they had no idea that the Democratic Party historically had had more public confidence around support for public education. Right. It's like they had no idea that there were ideologues, mostly on the right, who would use some of the sort of policy infrastructure that Democrats had created, as well as the rhetoric that they had spread to undermine public education, at, you know, which is, for the most part, again, as I said earlier, valued by those, you know, whether in the Democratic Party or elsewhere, who it seems unwittingly were paving the way for exactly what we're seeing right now. When you go back and you look at, you know, what happened around Act 10 in Wisconsin and and people's real fury that that Obama didn't push back harder. The, you know, the teachers union there is coming back now, but you know, there was a there was a fairly long period of time where they no longer had a lobbyist at the state house. It just shows you, you know, how how um, completely eviscerated they were. And the reason that the right went so hard at the teachers union in Wisconsin is not because of the role it played in, say, holding back student achievement. And it wasn't even really because of the role the union played in lobbying for benefits for teachers. It was because of all the other things that the union fights for, the safety net. And so it amazes me that Democrats would be so oblivious that, you know, we can look at states where teachers unions have historically been really weak. And you see that by every single measure, kids fare worse in those states because their safety nets are so much weaker. And so the fact that Democrats would have been able to, first of all, talk themselves into a theory of change where you were going to lift up kids by weakening their their unions, but then also not thinking at all about what was going to happen just solely in electoral terms. And so, you know, you can, you can look at what happens in Michigan after they pass right to work and you can watch the, you know, the, the unions unable to do their sort 
sort of historical get out the vote role, which was exactly the point. Anyone who paid attention to to Betsy DeVos's role during that fight, she clearly understood that, that, you know, like that was going to hamper the union's ability to to run candidates. And so you end up within a single election cycle, uh, changing the the background of candidates, right? So the only ones who can afford to run are self-funded. And then, you know, Democrats are really surprised by that. So I, I do feel like it, we, we are still reckoning with how dumb this was, frankly. You, you mentioned Ron, Ron DeSantis, and unfortunately, I do want to talk about him a little more because he, he, he made the war on, on so-called woke central and won really big in Florida last fall. And then the prior year, Glenn Youngkin won the 2021 Virginia gubernatorial race after centering his campaign around around so-called parent rights in opposition to, you know, this insidious teacher agenda to indoctrinate children with critical race theory. But on the other hand, Republicans overall ran on the same themes in the 2022 midterm elections and just bombed. What lessons can we draw from these seemingly contradictory data points about the culture war over education, why the right is successful when they are, and how the left and public education advocates and teachers can can fight back? I I have argued since Virginia that journalists really got that story wrong. And that if you go back and look at the way that Glenn Youngkin ran and also read what his advisors have to say about how he used education, you'll quickly figure out that it's very different from what we see Republicans trying out and largely failing to run on in other places. And what Youngkin managed to do was to assemble a coalition that he spoke directly to the base, which, you know, is fed an unending stream of red meat. And so he was railing against critical race theory to them. But he was also trying to lure suburban affluent parents in particular. And to them, he talked constantly about the elite magnet school in Virginia. And, you know, I just picked this up on my own. And so I was fascinated to go back and read, you know, when people would interview his his advisors, his campaign man- managers about his strategy, they talk a lot about how he really centered this magnet school and the idea that there was a war on merit, that standards had been lowered. And so speaking to both of these groups that the base is hearing that, you know, the kids are being taught to hate white people and hate themselves in the schools. And to the the affluent parents, somebody else is getting a, a shot at, at uh, the path to the Ivy League that should really belong to your kid. And so we should only consider merit. He won narrowly. But the, you know, the other piece that's important is that he, while he spent time talking about critical race theory, he also called for the single largest investment in public education in Virginia history. A sort of Trumpian statist conservative twist on an old theme. A little bit. And compare that with how you see other candidates running. And what I thought was really interesting was that you start seeing like way back before that election, you already hear conservative interest groups and internal RNC groups warning that Republicans are botching this parents' rights thing. So I went to an event in New Hampshire that was a big school choice event sponsored by the Club for Growth. And Betsy DeVos was there and Mike 
Mike Pompeo was there and it was just nuts. And they brought out their pollster and the pollster said, basically, you know, we've got some bad news for you. Stop talking about school choice. It's a brand that's tainted beyond any, any salvageability. Stop talking about critical race theory. It appeals to the base, but nobody else. Stop demonizing teachers. People don't like it when you demonize teachers. And then, you know, not, not long after that, you, you have the RNC warning that, again, Republicans are focused too narrowly on things like critical race theory and masks, and they've got to figure out a way to talk about parents' rights that appeals to independence and and show compassion and build a bigger coalition. So they have done absolutely nothing like that. Youngkin's race remains an outlier, and I think what happened was that even though there was a brief moment of reflection after the midterms where you heard folks saying, you know, we talked about trans athletes all the time and it really didn't work. And we had all these candidates who did nothing but talk about culture war and parents' rights and they lost and they lost badly. And then the real lesson that got taken from that was that it worked for Ron DeSantis. So let's do everything we can to sound like him. And what you have happening in the meantime is that DeSantis keeps staking out territory that's more and more extreme. I just wrote a piece for The Nation about how his education advisors are basically making the argument that too many of the wrong people go to college, including women, right? <laughs> Referring to, to our higher education institutions as citadels of gynocracy. Oh. And can you imagine? So, so every, every wow. couple of months, the, you know, the Republicans have this sort of soul searching, like, well, we've got to try to win over suburban women. They left us over Trump. How can we do it? So really, so now, now you're going to run on the idea that one, the advanced placement program is part of the quote unquote cathedral. And two, that too many of the wrong people are in college, including your daughter. And so I think that there are lots of lessons to be learned from parent rights, but the that most of the ones we're hearing from journalists are the wrong ones because they are incredibly gullible about this particular, you know, we're supposed to believe basically a, a line of reasoning that gets, you know, harder and harder to swallow. The, the way that Youngkin's focus on attacking affirmative action at an elite magnet school, that's really, that's really interesting because you did not hear that as much as CRT as an explanation for why he won. And yet I think there, that is an important and difficult issue rife with a lot of danger so that's maybe that's maybe the real lesson in terms of where the right can win over majority coalitions is when within this context of public educational scarcity and then you have a kind of a hierarchy of quality within that scarce system that there's really something for the right to exploit there. So you're absolutely right. And it's amazing to me that I almost feel like we shouldn't be talking about it because, you know, like, why haven't they, why haven't they figured this out? Why haven't they used this more as a strategy? So for example, in Massachusetts, where Jack and I both are, we, we really have not seen too many of the sort of culture war explosions that are playing out in other states. But where, where we have groups really active is exactly in the space that you're talking about, the group Parents Defense 
spending education, which is bankroll to an almost unimaginable degree, is they are playing in these affluent communities. And they're going to try to convince parents that any effort that's being made to level the playing field is something that's going to hold their kids back. And so it is exactly what you're talking about, this sort of scarcity mindset and pitting people against one another. But so when you look at the sorts of campaigns that are being run, all of the presidential aspirants are hitting education hard, but they're not doing it in this way at all. They're like Mike Pence, who is in Iowa all the time, running on on a trans policy at a particular school district. Like, could you get any smaller or meaner than that? And so I, um, I think that the more they try to follow the lead of DeSantis and the people who are around him, the the messier this is going to get because you quickly run into the you know the problem that the right has with higher ed more broadly. Do they want to burn it down? Do they is the goal to keep people from attending college period? Is it to take over colleges like like New College in Florida and make it the Hillsdale of the of the South? And so you see this kind of contradictory messaging popping up all over the place. But what you really don't see are candidates skillfully following in Youngkin's path. And for all of the things that he's done, you know, he introduced one of the most regressive trans policies in the country. But I think that the Republicans have moved well to the right to him. And so he's going to really, even if he does end up running, he's going to struggle to do anything like he did during his Virginia race, because they've all gotten so much crazier. There is a dangerous potential interest convergence here between centrist, middle-class Americans. You know, maybe they are mainstream Republicans in the traditional sense. Maybe they identify as independents or they are sort of Clinton-style Democrats. But there's potential interest convergence between them and the folks who are being fed a steady diet of red meat. And that is around this idea that that equity efforts or wokeness, as the right would say, are not just undermining cherished American values and ideals, right? That's one of the cases that's being made to the base, but are undermining the meritocracy. And if you can make the case that it's CRT and it's dangerous and, and young white kids are being taught to hate themselves and their parents and their families and their race, while also moderating that and saying, you know, maybe it isn't CRT necessarily, but it's affirmative action as well, right? And that's undermining the chances that your kids have you middle-class voters in predominantly white suburbs. It's undermining the chances that your kids have to go to a quote-unquote good school and to get into a quote-unquote good college and to remain in the middle class. One of the things that Jennifer and I have written about is how there is so much class status anxiety right now among the middle class because the drop down into the working poor, right? We can barely say we have a working class anymore, is a precipitous one. 
And if you can play into those anxieties, which in many ways are bound up with education because we have this collective national fiction, that we have a meritocracy and it operates primarily through education, right? That, that schools are the sorting ground where we identify the most able and the hardest working, and that it's a result of their labors and their inherent abilities that they get ahead, rather than saying, gosh, it is just sort of a credentialing and sorting system where those who came in on top end up coming out on top. If you can make that case while simultaneously making the culture war case to folks who you know are are by and large members of the working class or working poor and who have different interests and who in many ways have been abandoned by education policy um, and who continue to be abandoned by education policy by both those on the left and the right, then you have a really powerful coalition and, and one that is you know, potentially even more devastating to democratic politics, but maybe isn't as devastating to public education because inherent in that message is, no, we're not burning down the school system. No, we're not ripping apart the chances that you middle-class people have of ensuring you know, the maintenance of your class status through the education of your children. So you know, I, I think there are some, some decision points that Republican leaders will be facing. And the appeal of the fiery rhetoric, the red meat rhetoric around culture war and anti-trans legislation and rhetoric you know, anti-CRT legislation and rhetoric is really powerful and the right is being lured into that, which, you know, I'll just reverse what I said a minute ago. I think that that's that's maybe promising for members of the Democratic Party running against Republicans, but ultimately worse for public education because it is more oriented towards ripping the whole thing apart. Right. That's a really interesting point. The, The sort of themes that are being used to mobilize more affluent parents towards the right, it's less about privatizing or destroying the public ed system and more about protecting and shoring up the racialized class inequalities present within the current public ed system, which are sort of two different things, both not good, but but different. Yep. And I just want to emphasize here that this anti-affirmative action politics, whether we're talking about Harvard or New York City's elite magnet Bronx science, that this is, I think, truly perhaps the right's best bet at realigning Asian voters behind mm. them. So something important to, to keep in mind. Yeah. Teacher shortages are becoming a a big problem across the country, including here in Providence, where I live. And you've written that enrollment in teacher preparation programs is just plummeting. Even Teach for America, part of this whole constellation of teacher demonization institutions, even their applications are declining. Should any of this be remotely surprising, given not only these decades of bipartisan teacher bashing politics that we've been talking about because teacher starting salaries are below $40,000 in a majority of states and also just everything that's happened with and since the pandemic. Yeah, no, none of this should be surprising to us. That there is a concerted attack on the teaching profession matters, and it maybe matters more that that attack is, you know, several decades old teachers are tired of being demonized. And when you pair that with the pay 
that teachers receive, which is declining not only relative to similarly educated peers, but also just declining overall, right? Teacher pay is not keeping up with inflation. And even when you take inflation into account, it is on the decline. So think about how teachers are compensated for their work there, right? Historically, we have gotten away with a teacher discount in terms of compensating them for their professional expertise. So what we saw across the 20th century was we increasingly asked teachers to pursue more pre-service training. And today, in some states, to be a fully licensed teacher, let's say in Massachusetts, you need to have a master's degree, right? Couple that with the rising cost of higher education over the decades, and you're asking teachers to make a substantial investment in order to just get a foot in the classroom. And although there are alternate routes, most teachers continue to pursue traditional routes into the classroom in large part because pre-service training matters and they want to be successful. They don't want a fly-by-night training that is going to drop them into classrooms relatively unprepared to learn on the job and probably do wrong by their students for a couple years until they figure out what they're doing, right? So they're making substantial investments in their own training. They're coming in and then receiving less money than they would if they entered other professions that require similar levels of education, and then couple that with rising levels of demonization. So first, let's go back in time to the early 2000s, right? The demonization wasn't so much about educators being you know, nefarious actors. And that's really what we're seeing right now, right? Teachers are Marxists, teachers are groomers, teachers have litter boxes in their classrooms for young people who they are encouraging <laughs> to identify as any kind of living thing they want. Um, but you know, go back to the early 2000s, and the rhetoric was about educators being primarily self-interested and using their unions in order to insulate themselves from any kind of accountability. So go back to the Vergara case, right, where the effort there, and it was supported by a broad coalition of center-left, center-right groups and donors who believed that if you could peel back things like teacher tenure, what you would get is a better quality of teacher because educators would be a little bit more fearful about losing their jobs for bad performance, right? Well, that also actually undermines overall educator compensation because if you're a teacher and you're thinking about, is this worth it, right? You're not just doing the dollars and cents ROI calculation on, am I going to make back what I have to spend in order to be trained as a teacher and then work in this profession? You're also doing other kinds of calculations like, well, What's the lifestyle going to be like? Well, I know that I'm not going to be laid off like the 10,000 people at Meta who just got a layoff notice after 10,000 people were previously laid off by Meta, right? I'm going to be insulated from the market a bit there. And I know that schools are going to remain in business functioning, right? I don't need to worry about my school going out of business. There are 98,000 public schools. There are 50 million kids in them. That's what it's going to look like for the foreseeable future. They're going to need teachers. This is a nice, stable profession that is low risk for me, occupationally speaking. And then add to that one more thing that educators get, which is the psychological benefit of feeling like you're doing good in the world, like you're making a difference for young people. 
And that is the piece that was more and more under attack as we moved from the early 2000s into the present. And so what all of that means is that overall educator compensation, not just taking in salary um, to, to this equation, but also taking in things like you know, perceived stability of the profession, perceived social utility, right? That the overall compensation package has declined. And finally, one more thing to add to that is that, you know, it, it started with the idea that, you know, maybe we would shut schools down for low test performance, right? That comes out of No Child Left Behind, which was extended by the Every Student Succeeds Act. And couple that with you know, exposure to markets through charter schools, right? You see one more piece that educators are worried about is, is my school going to be shut down or are we going to be denied the freedom to teach because suddenly we need to be laser focused on test scores? And that today is a bit different because, you know, what we're talking about in some states is a universal voucher that means that enrollments at public schools will be fluctuating wildly you know year to year as well as as facing precipitous declines in student enrollment in the short term you know for some educators it means you know levels of stress that were just simply never predicted when they got into the profession and those who aren't in the profession are looking around and saying you know what it's just not worth it right add it all up right look at the benefits on one column and the costs on the other. This is no longer a job that makes sense for me. And just to add that the research is pretty clear that that these measures, both, you know, from really the, the, the high point of bipartisan corporate ed reforms, power at the federal level in the Bush and Obama administrations, no child left behind under Bush, and then race to the top under Obama, these, these measures that put it this intense pressure on schools to raise test scores and to use those test scores to, to weed out so-called bad teachers and, and bad schools, that the research shows that they did not improve test scores, but they did result in this incredible narrowing of the curriculum and this increasing emphasis, particularly in low-income schools, particularly low-income schools of color, on test prep, turning these places into test prep boot camps, prompting cheating scandals like what happened in Atlanta and I think around, you know, about a decade ago. And on top of all of that, really demoralizing teachers and playing a big role in making it an unsurprisingly unattractive profession for many. Well, why would it have worked? Think about the theory of change there. The theory of change behind the reform efforts that were centered largely around teachers, and actually we can expand that to think about most of the high-profile educational reforms of the quarter century running from you know, the George H.W. Bush White House through the end of the Obama administration. Um, it, it was a theory of change that speculated that what schools and educators need is more top-down governance, right? So this is a corporate informed theory of change. We need to have tighter coupling within the system. So sociologist Dan Lordy once uh, observed the egg crate design of schools, right? Because every classroom essentially is insulated from every other. And what that enables is 
uh, a lot of autonomy for teachers, right? To close their doors. And if you've got a negative view of them to do God knows what inside their classrooms. But if you have a positive view of them and treat them as professionals, right? To close their doors and insulate themselves from, you know, potentially bad policy coming down the pike and to do what they think is best for the young people in their care. Um, but, you know, there was this corporate vision of tighter coupling to ensure that, you know, the CEO, and by the way, you know, lots of urban superintendents like Arne Duncan in Chicago, who became Obama's secretary of education, restyled themselves as CEOs, right? So that the CEO would have greater control over his, and it was usually a he, employees. Um, that, that was coupled with a very related theory of change, which was that what schools and educators need is more pressure on them. They need to face the kinds of pressures that you face in the free market. Educators need to worry about being fired, just like their corporate counterparts do. And schools need to worry about going out of business, just like their corporate counterparts do. And that if what we can do is make educators and school leaders feel those kinds of pressures, then just like any good business or any good employee, they'll begin to increase their productivity. And so if you then take that theory of change and apply it, of course we're going to end up with policies like test-based accountability, right? Hey, you didn't get the results, we're closing you down. The educators didn't move the needle on student test scores, they're going to be fired. Of course you get things like value-added measures of teacher effectiveness, not only because you want to expose teachers to market forces, but also if you're going to have top-down corporate-style governance, you're not going to be able to see what three and a half million teachers are doing inside their classrooms. It's got to exist in a spreadsheet. It's got to be a number, right? And, and so the effort to quantify teacher quality was very much rooted in both sides of this theory of change, that we need corporate-style pressure from you know the, the exposure to markets, and we need corporate-style management, top-down management over teachers. Again, it applies to other reforms as well, right? Think about charter schools. That's an effort to expose schools in a limited way, but still to expose them to the free market. None of this makes any sense because it actually really matters what educators know about the kids in their classrooms. It really matters what principals know about their communities, right? The families in a school, the kids in a school. And if what you do is you handcuff them and you say, oh no, actually we're going to have a much more tightly coupled system in which, you know, the federal government is going to exert much more authority over states. States are going to exert much more authority over districts, districts over schools, schools over teachers, right? You're really limiting the ability of professionals inside schools and classrooms to do what's going to work. And similarly, these corporate theories of change, right, are really rooted in a classist and highly gendered understanding of education, right? If education wasn't predominantly a feminized field, right, the, the vast majority of teachers are women. 
I don't think we would have seen a theory of change that was so disrespectful of professional expertise. And similarly, if teaching weren't a kind of very lower middle class profession, I don't think we would have seen a theory of change that was, again, as disrespectful of what educators know, because it presumes that educators maybe are hiding their best lessons in their desks, waiting for the day when it will become more remunerative to pull those lessons out. It presumes that school principals got into those jobs so that they could close their doors and smoke cigars and maybe play Tetris on their computers. I'm obviously dating myself here with my <laughs> game reference. Um, it presumes that educator unions don't exist to try to advance professionalism, but you know, operate as a kind of cartel there to prevent competition. None of this is true. We know from research that the primary motivator of educators is the desire to make a difference, the desire to change the lives of young people. And so we were talking a minute ago about teacher compensation. A large part of teacher compensation is in psychic rewards, the sense of making a difference for young people, the sense of doing a job that matters and has social utility. Educators have never earned what they deserve in the quote-unquote free market, but they do get a lot in addition to the dollars and cents they bring home in their paychecks. And that was really undermined by reform efforts of that quarter century that I'm talking about. So it's not just that the theory of change was wrong, it's that the theory of change actually made conditions in education worse because the theory was rooted in flawed assumptions about educators. And by the way, it absolutely paved the way for the kinds of efforts to dismantle public education that we see today. Between the fall of 2009 and, and fall 2019, charter school enrollment nationwide grew from 3% of public school students to 7%. And that growth appeared to continue during the pandemic. But you are right, quote, despite these victories, though, true believers in the free market weren't satisfied. Charter schools, for all their entrepreneurial goals, were still just a half measure. They opened schools up to competition, certainly, but they remained under state oversight. I think this is a really kind of subtle but important point. What accounts for the right-wing and neoliberal Democrats converging around this bipartisan reform movement in support of charters and high-stakes testing and in the 90s and aughts? And then, and then over the past decade, the right somewhat breaking free of that alliance to push outright vouchers as their top priority again. For, for the right, how did charters fit into their more extreme movement to dismantle and privatize the entire system? And why did they shift their emphasis back to vouchers? That's such a great question. When you go back to the 90s, like you can really see this coalition taking shape that, you know, on the one hand, you have new Democrats who are so eager to move the party away from its redistributionist roots, right? They, If they could just move away from anything FDR-esque. And, you know, it's that, that moment where, you know, you earn what you learn, as Bill Clinton liked to put it. And so you've, you've got the Democrats very much focused on emphasizing education, but also wanting to discipline two different key constituencies within their party. 
the teachers unions, and the civil rights coalition. They are talking about education nonstop. There's, you know, very much this moment of sort of performance pay and good government. And then you have uh, Republicans who had been all in for things like religious schooling and vouchers. And their movement runs out of steam. They, you know, they were once again sort of coalescing around parents' rights. People forget that when Pat Buchanan announced his run for the presidency in New Hampshire, he said he was going to be the candidate of the parents. And so they had watched as their movement kind of ran out of steam, that that people turned away from from it as they came to see it as as too extreme and too focused on things like sex ed and gay and lesbian rights. And so you have this coming together and the the Republicans kind of put aside their dream of religious education. And Democrats agree that, you know, they're gonna embrace a, a vision that weakens teacher unions and the real compromise is is, is charter schools. And you see this first take flight in, in Minnesota. And it's so interesting to go back and look and see who, who was part of that conversation and what did they want. The the neoliberal moment in, in the Democratic Party is, is now, you know, it's so familiar. Like there's such types. And so this really takes off that, you know, you have all these people who who believe in charter schools for lots and lots of different reasons. And I think that's that's very important for us to acknowledge, right? That that now we look back and we think, oh, how could the Democrats have been so dumb? But you know, there was actually there was all kinds of demand for, you know, to free up education from, you know, what was represented as kind of stifling bureaucracy. And it was a, a moment of great social anxiety as well, economic anxiety. And so this this vision, uh, particularly in urban areas, really takes off. And this idea that anybody anybody could start a school, teachers really like that. We hear all the time that Albert Shanker from the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers, invented the charter school. And that's a story that isn't quite true. But it is true that the teachers, teachers liked this vision. So you see with the aid of lots of political backing and lots of, of financial support and Silicon Valley support. And, and so charter schools basically explode. And then, as we've been talking about today, at a certain point, the, the fact that you have all these people converged under this big tent whose interests don't necessarily lie, it gets you into trouble. So now, you know, we arrive at the present and the the right has gone back to their original vision, which is using taxpayer dollars to pay for religious schools and and basically the original Milton Friedman ideal, which is that you give money directly to parents and you let them spend it however they want. If that's your goal, something like a charter school, which even though it's it's less regulated than a public school, it is still a quote unquote government school. And so the bipartisan coalition is now in tatters, which means that, you know, charter schools for all sorts of reasons are really vulnerable in a way that I think your listeners probably aren't aware of. There's a case, for example, speeding its way towards the Supreme Court, which is making the argument that charter schools are, quote unquote, non-state actors. And this would mean that they are not covered by civil rights protections. The 14th Amendment, for example, does not apply to them. And so this is something that if you went back, like if we inserted ourselves into that original conversation in Minnesota, I think that the 
Democrats who were pushing this really had no idea like, oh, well, down the road, you know, the idea is that that we're going to push really hard to for this completely unregulated vision and that we're going to apply that to charter schools. But also you give parents money directly and they decide not just what a good school is, but but what education is. You know, they can buy stuff on Amazon and call it school. Yeah, I think the thing that I would add there is that those original supporters of charter schools would be surprised and they would be naive to be surprised because vouchers have been on the policy agenda for market fundamentalists for decades. And in fact, the first voucher programs that we saw were around the very same time as the first charter schools. So there were very limited voucher programs in Milwaukee and Cleveland. This is the late 1980s, early 1990s. And the only way that voucher advocates were able to get those through is that they were framed as being exclusively for historically marginalized racial and economic groups. So we're talking about you know, predominantly African-American, low-income students and their families who advocates and activists had long made the case, had been ignored by the public schools in those cities. And there was actually significant civil rights support for those voucher programs, not because they believed in the power of the free market, but because they wanted any way to get low-income Black students, that's primarily who we're talking about in these cases, into schools where they would be treated with dignity, right? It was, it was a kind of by any means necessary approach there. And voucher advocates wanted for a long time to try to expand those voucher programs, but there was no thirst for that, right? Ronald Reagan had lost on a very limited voucher in the 1980s. Reagan didn't lose on anything. Right. But he lost on that. He tucked tail and moved on to other things, you know, like firing all the air traffic controllers. And the, the dream of a universal voucher was put on ice. And then what we see is the kind of normalization of the language of choice, the normalization of the idea of having options. And by the way, options often are a replacement for rights there. Um, they certainly are in the minds of market ideologues. Right? You no longer have rights in a privatized system. Just go choose a different school if you don't like how you're being treated or why you've been expelled. But we then move through a couple decades of normalization of the idea that we should all be shopping for schools and that we actually have the tools to do this, which of course we don't, right? But that was a big part of the rhetoric is that families know, families can make choices the neoliberal Democrats were largely arguing that that's one of the reasons we needed student standardized test scores so that parents could make informed choices about where to send their kids to school, never mind the fact that those student standardized test scores often tell us far more about demography than about what's happening inside a school. But a lot of normalization here that then by the time you get to Betsy DeVos, right, becomes, I think, a normalization not just of the idea of choice, but of the idea of a system that is, in, you know, in her mind, no longer a system, right? That it's a market. 
a lot of people saw Betsy DeVos as a failure as Secretary of Education because she didn't drive forward the same kinds of policies that her predecessors drove through. You know, think about the things that Arne Duncan got done, right? He got No Child Left Behind reauthorized despite it being a much reviled law as the Every Student Succeeds Act with, you know, really limited changes. He pushed through race to the top. Right? He oversaw a kind of unmaking of the power of teachers' unions. Right? So Duncan accomplished a lot in terms of driving forward his policy agenda. DeVos didn't, but DeVos normalized some very extreme thinking about schools. Right, This Thatcherite notion that there's no such thing as society. There's only individuals. There shouldn't be an education system, right? There should only be the interests of the child and the options of the parents. And the, the, the phrase that I think best captures this and that DeVos used over and over and continues to use now is the money should follow the child, right? That you should fund students, not systems. And no wonder we are now in a place where Americans... Not, not all of them, certainly, but a large percentage of Americans in red states particularly are now open to the idea of vouchers. There are other reasons as well, right? The conflation of private schools with elite education, which, by the way, is, is really wrong. Um, you know, yeah, but, yes. Say, say a little about what the, the median private school in, in this country actually looks yeah, like. Yeah, the median private school is a religious school that operates with a smaller budget than your local public school, doesn't have any trained educators there, and makes whatever decisions it wants about curriculum. You know, certainly one of the problems with regulation is that it can lower the ceiling, right? You're really squeezing towards the middle, and the cost of squeezing towards the middle is lowering the ceiling when you say, here are all of the bureaucratic requirements that come with public dollars, right? We're going to insist that you do X, Y, and Z, and that in some ways is going to limit your freedom, right? You're going to fly a little less high, right? But it also sets a floor there. And we need to remember that in a privatized system, there's no floor whatsoever, right? You hire whoever you want to come teach the young people who are enrolled at that school. You teach them whatever you want with regard to curriculum. And so, you know, there has been good investigative reporting in places like Florida, where they have voucher programs. They call it a tax credit scholarship program, where we see children being taught, for instance, that dinosaurs and humans roamed the earth at the same time, right? Or that being gay is a sin and it's something that can be corrected through therapy. In Florida, tax credit dollars even go to a school with a curriculum from the Church of, of Scientology. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the things that is also operating in the background is this very American notion that if you're paying for it, that it's better than if it's free. And there's a lot of conflation of the elite private schools that charge tuition, you know, upwards of $60,000 a year with any private school. And most of them, again, are operating on budgets smaller than your local public school. The truth is that if you want trained teachers, if you want a curriculum that you know has passed a sniff test and has been looked at by some people who have been elected by your community to oversee your public schools, that you're not going to find it in private schools. 
And that conflation, you you all right, is is intentional. Just think about how many of these schools have the word academy in their name. Yeah, right. Or the word prep Mm -hmm. or the word ivy, right? (laughs) That in the free market, one of the things you're able to do in education is actually engage in advertising. And there are no real limits on what you're able to say. So unlike the pharmaceutical industry, and you know, we're not talking about angels there in the pharmaceutical industry, unlike prescription drugs, where there are clear limits on what you can say. And in fact, there are requirements for what you have to say, right? This is going to cause dry eyeball and it may also kill you. In education, you can say whatever you want. This is the top school in your area. This school <laughs> produces incredible results for every child. This is, you know, the school that produces the largest gains in learning for anybody in the state. You can make any of those claims. And in fact, we're really vulnerable to those claims, those of us who are parents of children in schools, because we drop them off at the schools. We don't actually go in there with them. And it takes a long time to figure out what the experience your young person is having in that school, right? It's not like a sandwich where I know pretty instantly what I think of it, right? Education is not a consumable in that sense. And you certainly can't tell the quality of it merely from, you know, walking through on an open house or looking at the building from the outside. By the way, we know that a lot of people take their cues about school quality simply from what the exterior of the building looks like, right? We also know that word of mouth is really powerful and that people will often rely on things they have heard from people who don't actually send their kids to that school. This is a very fraught area in terms of trying to figure out what the quality of the good is. And that's one of the reasons why we have regulation and oversight in education to ensure that there is a baseline of quality at every public school. All of that goes away in a privatized system, and we're extremely vulnerable there in a way that we simply aren't for lots of other consumables. And I just want to pause to emphasize what the median sort of (laughs) private school is in this country, including in terms of those getting funded by vouchers and also these neo-vouchers, the tax credit systems created to get around state constitutional bans on supporting religious institutions. You both write, quote, in a review of 7,000 schools across the country that accept public money via traditional school vouchers or neo-vouchers, reporter Rebecca Klein determined that a third of them were using a curriculum provided by one of three popular and ideologically extreme Christian textbook companies. This is really common. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, if if that's up your alley, right, then, you know, maybe this is the, the policy future you want for schools. And, you know, that is appealing to Christian nationalists who we talked about earlier. But in terms of ordinary Americans, you know, I think that the idea that you know you're getting essentially a free education at a private school means something quite different than well you no longer have the option of a high quality local public school and you are now going to be thrown to the wolves in the free market where god knows what's being taught at any of these schools there is no requirement for oversight there is no public accountability There is no requirement for educators to be trained. They can operate on whatever budget they want, including returning value to shareholders if they like. That's not what most people have in mind. I mean, we can always dream of that bright future where all our children are learning that humans walked side by side 
with the dinosaurs and better yet, get taught that by a computer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right, right. Well, a part of the infatuation with technology among market fundamentalists is that it reduces the cost of education, right? So we know that about 80% of the dollars that go towards public education end up paying for salary and benefits for the people who work in our schools. And if you want a system that costs taxpayers less, and the reason that you would want that is that you don't believe in taxation, right? You don't believe in redistribution. You believe that each of us should be responsible for ourselves. And if you don't have enough to look after yourself, maybe there's something equivalent to a pauper school, which, by the way, we had in the 19th century and actively chose to not pursue as the option for public education, right? Then, then you know, if this is your, your vision, of course you're going to want to reduce the costs of labor and the best way to do that is to replace labor the same way that we've replaced labor in other industries, right, with technology. The problem is, is it doesn't work very well in education, right? Every experiment that has been done with replacing teachers with machines or with algorithms has revealed that education is just too complex. It just doesn't work there. And that actually explains a lot about why the cost of education continues to go up and up year after year, because it's really hard to integrate the, the kind of labor-saving work of technology. So, you know, people can Google Balmol's cost disease and, and read all about why a string quartet took as many people 200 years ago as it takes today and why televisions are so much less expensive in 2023 than they were in 1943. But all of this is bound up in the vision that market ideologues have for the future of education, which is not going to be public, which is not going to be taxpayer-funded in the end, right? Maybe, again, if you are living in poverty, there will be a pauper school where you can drop your kid off at a learning center where, you know, there will be an adult, not a trained adult, who makes <laughs> sure your kid gets on a screen and does whatever the algorithm is asking your child to do. And then everybody else will be responsible for paying for whatever they're able to get. And again, this is what we had in the 19th century, the early 19th century, prior to the advent of public education, where there were options for paupers, particularly in, and you know, this, by the way, that's not, that's not my current language. That was the language of the time. And that was particularly in cities. And then there were private academies. There were what were called dame schools, right? So this would be an educated woman who was running a school in her home. Today, we still have that, but only in you know, pre-K. It would look like a private academy if you had the money, or you could just sort of do private tutoring and then at age 14 or 15 or 16, go to college. Colleges and high schools were competitors with each other at the time. It, it's not a very well-organized or particularly inspiring vision, and that's exactly the, the future that we're headed towards, it, right? It's one that looks a lot like the past. Privatization is obviously driven by corporate or capitalist interests, but, but that happens in different ways, sometimes, you know, understandably obscured by the, the sloganeering necessary for kind of, you know, protesting and, and posting on Twitter. But, you know, you have on the one hand, the, the for-profit educational and charter management companies that want to directly profit. But then on the other hand, you have these billionaires 
who fund privatization and school reform politics like the Bradleys, DeVosses, Kochs. And for them, they seem to have a much grander political and economic ambition, way beyond directly profiting from public education. These are billionaires that directly profit from a ton of stuff. Who are the major funders of anti-public ed politics? And how would you distinguish that set from those who seek to directly profit from public ed? And then for these for these big funders, what what is their ideology and why and why within it does public education figure as such a central enemy, given that it's not necessarily their direct ambition to directly profit from public education, though that is some capitalists' (laughs) direct ambition. That's such a great question. And when I first started writing about this stuff, I was definitely in the sort of follow the money blogger camp. You know, like that was my role to expose these various connections. And so, you know, like my whole life was kind of like a little cis flow chart. And this is going to make me unpopular with some of your listeners, but I think we we wildly overstate the profit motive in all of this. And it actually hampers us as we try to make sense of, say, what's happening right now. That, that the only answer I see people able to come up with as we watch this kind of privatization machine roll across red states in particular is they're in it for the money. And, you know, the reality is that these, you know, the voucher schools, the the majority of them end up going out of business. It's a, uh, it's it's not an easy way to make money. Anyone who has tried to start a charter school as a sort of standalone business will tell you that running a school in an era of accountability is is a really challenging way to try to cash in. So there's got to be something else going on here. And if you actually look at the the motivation of these kind of like, you know, think about our politics right now and the extent to which it's dominated by these old industrial families in the Midwest. And I'm thinking about people like the the DeVosses in Michigan, the box factory guy in Wisconsin. Every Midwestern state has one of these billionaires. Of course, we're the most familiar with the the Koch brothers. And, you know, what stands out to me is, one, just how long this has been a goal of theirs um the bradleys in in wisconsin and that that they have they have had public education as a target going back forever and you know these are obviously families of immense wealth you know betsy devos is not her goal is not to buy another yacht by taking schools private it's that public education represents so many things that they don't like so they don't like the taxes that pay for it they don't like the fact that it's redistributionist where you start to see the overlap with with religion is that they feel very very strongly that this public and secular institution has undermined the family. So you start to see the overlap with the the post-liberal right. And just to pause you right there, there's an amazing DeVos quote that you guys have where she's warning of public ed, quote, the school building replaces the home, the child becomes a constituent, and the state replaces the family. Absolutely. And so that is such an old argument, right? Like we can go back to the 20s. We can go back to the the right wing movements that emerged in response to the New Deal. And I think, you know, one of the really weird things about education and the people who study it is that, that on the one hand, public education is an absolutely central preoccupation of the right. And yet people who study the right 
really don't pay that much attention to education. I can't tell you how many books I've read and how many people I have interviewed who, you know, when I put this question to them, hey, Rick Perlstein, why is the right so obsessed with education? And he'll say something like, you know, I'm, I, I don't, I never thought of it that way before. And historians of education tend not to be focused on the right. And so we're left with this kind of vacuum. And again and again, you see people turning to the explanation, which makes the most sense of, to them. It's got to be the money. So the other piece that I think we often miss is just how far back the, the right and these kind of wealthy industrialists have obsessed over what schools teach. We think this is new, right? That the culture wars are new. You can go all the way back and they are obsessed with the fact that schools are not doing a good enough job in producing kids who are faithful enough to the principles of the free market. And so you see this pop up again and again that, that the kids are coming out, they're, they're socialists, what is it? Why are they so anti-business? It's got to be what they're learning in the schools. And so you see these early industrialist group like the National Association of Manufacturers. They're obsessed with textbooks. They're reviewing all of them. If we could just get the lessons of the free market in front of the kids, that's the thing that's going to do it. And and so this, this pops up decade after decade. And here we are again. And we have this weird coalition right now that Jack alluded to earlier, where you see groups of people who want to drive their cultural program through the schools, and that we're going to slow the tide of cultural change by, by limiting what they can be taught, what they can read about, and what they can talk about in schools. And then you've got this other camp that says, well, we're going to move kids off the books. We're going to move them into private schools and ideally home schools where parents can directly influence. They can pick what their kids are going to learn. And that's where you get to this, you know, like if schools are undermining the family, we're going to shore the family back up by subsidizing homeschooling. And, and then all these things overlap in this weird way that you actually have religious fundamentalists and free market fundamentalists on the same page up to a, up to a point. But I would really encourage people, as you watch these bills get rammed through in state after state, open your mind to the possibility that there is more driving this than just the money. There is absolutely money to be made, right? There is, people are going to cash in on trends like for-profit micro schools. But at the end of the day, what is really happening here is an effort to undermine anything that would make the country more equal. And that is a really, really old goal. Stepping back in time a little, I think I think the Great Recession and then the 2010 Tea Party wave election are really critical points in this history. It's sort of the high high point of the bipartisan corporate reform power. And also, as high points in power often turn out to be, I think also what sets the stage for its unraveling. So amid this generational economic crisis, you have Republican governors seizing the advantage all over the country to slash public education funding and attack unions. And in Pennsylvania, and particularly Philly, where I was an education reporter, we had Governor Tom Corbett doing these deep cuts to public school funding, and then also participating in a push by the state-controlled school reform committee to charterize the district. Real kind of disaster capitalism uh, style situation. And the response was a massive social movement 
that pushback, led in part by Helen Jim, who since has been elected a city councilwoman, is now a leading candidate for mayor. But the real the real epicenter of the progressive public ed resistance was really Chicago, where the 2012 Chicago Teachers Union strike just opened an entirely new era for teachers unionism in the country. The the CTU had been taken over by a left-wing rank-and-file caucus that then internally reorganized their union from the ground up, making it into this militant, united, fighting social movement union that approached their conflicts with the district through through what's called bargaining for the common good, a framework that expands teachers' demands well beyond you know, so-called bread and butter pocketbook issues to include things primarily of concern to students and parents. So just stepping back to that moment a little over a decade, how significant was it the way that this conflict came to a head in places like Philly and Chicago? And just how significant was the CTU strike in particular in terms of changing the entire trajectory of education politics and teachers unions in this country? I think including by by repolarizing education politics and breaking apart the the solidity of that bipartisan consensus? That I mean, I think it's such a great question. And I was lucky enough to get to campaign with Helen as she was running for council the first time. And I just remember going to these neighborhoods and they were neighborhoods where the schools had closed. People have completely just they feel like they they have been divested from in this personal way and helen understood that and i think that's what the ctu understood too that the discourse of education reform and the kind of business minded strategies that jack described so well earlier you know like these aren't these aren't new to places like chicago and philly you know they they got there way before and so they've lived with the rest Package. And and so they're, you know, precisely the places where the kind of the kind of business-minded reform pitch loses its appeal earlier. And you're absolutely right that, you know, this is the story of the Chicago Teachers Union and its decision to sort of change the the narrative to really make this bold case for needing to lift the entire community up and deliver to schools to deliver to kids the the schools that they deserved but it's also the story of a particular vision of education reform running out of steam and i don't think people are aware enough of the fact that Rahm Emanuel could not run for re-election because of those school closings we interviewed a, a young scholar on our podcast. Her name is Sally Nuama. And she went back to Chicago. It's where she grew up. And she started studying. She was amazed at the passion that that folks in these neighborhoods were displaying in an effort to keep their schools open. And they lost, right? They lost that in neighborhood after neighborhood, the schools are closed. So then she goes back and she looks at the impact that that had on polling and on Democratic participation. And what she was able to show measurably is that those school closures then undermined any path that Rahm Emanuel would have had for re-election. And I think that 
for people outside of Chicago, they're still, you know, having this sort of abstract discussion about charter schools. Like, well, Vallis must be popular because we have a poll here that shows that Black people support charter schools. And this is a, something that was in the New York Times recently. And if you go to Chicago and, you know, you you travel around these neighborhoods where schools have closed and you you talk to people like Brandon Johnson did about, you know, what has happened to communities in the wake of those school closures and how little people believe in the idea that that education should be a kind of scarce resource that you have to compete against each other in order to benefit from that holds no appeal to people anymore. And so they don't see the Chicago Teachers Union as a special interest group. And that that's really hard for folks who are, you know, sort of just pundits. I'm thinking of like a Jonathan Chait. <laughs> so much of the coverage about the this mayoral race was bad because of that, right? That that they they insisted on painting Brandon Johnson as this very kind of, you know, that he was the candidate of the union and that he was against progress. I subscribe to Whitney Tilson's email list. He's the the founder of Democrats for Education Reform. So I got an email from him on Monday so excited about Paul Vallis. What a visionary. And that, you know, like Chicago had this chance to reinvent itself or be, you know, mired in the past and continue to decline. And it's actually like, that's how people view the legacy of education reform in Chicago, that decade upon decade of business-minded reform, charter school expansion, and, you know, this, this kind of like ethos of competition not only has it not delivered the improvements it was supposed to, but it's left a lot of these neighborhoods in chaos. Yeah. And the CTU has not just gone out on strike. They've gone out on strike with overwhelming parental support. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, like we were talking about how this bipartisan education reform coalition has fallen apart. And that's a big part of the reason. It's not just the fact that the that the theory of change falls flat, right? That inequality just gets wider and wider. Nobody believes that schools alone are going to be the thing that does it. But also, you know, unions are more popular than ever, particularly among young people. And so the idea that you're going to center your case for change on the demonization of unions is, you know, it starts to look a little bit crazy. And I think this drives critics of unions and a particular, you know, the Democrats have an entire wing of the party that is still very much based on this idea. And boy, did you see them coming out in force for Vallis, right? So that you saw, you know, there's Dick Durbin, there's Arnie Duncan. And if you're somebody who's trying to understand like, well, how did they end up backing the tough on crime guy who also says that, you know, like he's basically a Republican. Well, because actually, like, that's the part of the party where education reform is situated. It's just easier for us to see that now. I think one of the things that is important to recognize as we're thinking through why teachers unions made that pivot, why they have continued to engage in the strategy of bargaining for the common good, and why the public has 
really come around on teachers' unions in a way that they hadn't previously. Uh, you know, that, of course, is a small percentage of the public. Um, I should clarify. Uh, you know, it's Republican um, voters have not come around on teachers' unions, <laughs> but but Democratic voters in many cases have. And I think one of the really important contextual reasons for all of this is actually a piece of bad news. And that is that I think all of us are getting clearer and clearer on the fact that public education is kind of the last institution we have left, right? That across the, the 80s, Ronald Reagan went about dismantling as many public institutions as he could. But then that got taken up by the new Democrats, right? Who fully embraced the idea that uh, less government was better government and that government should be operating much more like a business. You know, Barack Obama, I think, in many ways was different from Bill Clinton, but, you know, not markedly so with regard to his thinking about mechanisms for social uplift. One of his constant refrains was about the importance of education for people getting ahead rather than, let's say, addressing income inequality directly and head on. And so here we are in the year 2023 as the assault on anything resembling an effort to promote racial or economic equity continues to mount on the right. And as we deal with you know, the, the aftermath of a couple of decades of centrist, Democrat, neoliberal approaches to trying to address inequality, largely dumping the responsibility for solving inequality at the doorstep of public schools, I think lots of us have recognized that schools can't solve poverty, but they may be the last thing that we've got left in terms of a real public apparatus that reaches across the United States in every single community that directly addresses young people and their families. And because of that, suddenly it makes a lot more sense to engage in an approach to bargaining which centers the public good, right? Which centers things like feeding people who are food insecure, which centers things like meeting the, the psychological and physical health issues that young people and their families may face. And I think that you know unions in many cases have benefited from this unfortunate situation. And it's ironic that the Democratic Party really has not. They have not figured out that a broader, bolder vision of what public education can be would, I think, be really galvanizing to folks on the left, right? Not the idea that we are going to continue to insist that schools solve inequality by, you know, a sort of black box methodology subscribed to by centrist Republicans and Democrats for several decades, whereby, you know, somehow magically you've learned something in school and you're no longer in poverty anymore and neither is your family but rather by thinking about what are the ways that we might invest in and around public education through models like the full-service community school model that would directly alleviate poverty and its effects. And so you know, I think that that's a really important underlying issue there that, again, explains a kind of shift in union tactics, a kind of change in the way that at least those on the left perceive unions, and that it remains an opportunity for the Democratic Party, which continues to flounder with regard to its 
position on public education. What is the future of public education? They don't really have a good answer for that. They haven't for a long time. And again, there's a kind of irony there because not only is it kind of patently obvious with regard to the assault from the right, right? The, the message is we need public education and need to stand up for it. But I think there's a somewhat less obvious case to make, which is, and this is maybe the base from which we begin to build out a more robust approach to addressing inequality in an age of, you know, just continuing widening of the gap between the haves and have-nots. So soon after this, you know, incredible 2018 Red Fred teacher strike wave and the UTLA strike of 2019, which all built upon this this big pivot that CTU really led the way on in 2012, I, I was worried that the assaults on teachers unleashed during the pandemic had, had undermined so much of that progress. But then with what's going on in, in Chicago and, and also Philly, knock on wood, it's really incredible. We see the decade-long impacts of these struggles for public education translating into serious political power with both Brandon Johnson in Chicago, Helen in Philly, both cities where Paul Vallis ran the school district. What are the lessons here about the the role of public education, left-led militant teachers unions, not only for public education, qua public education, but in terms of reviving the left and building popular power more generally? Why why is it that public education and teachers play this foundational role for, for the left as a whole? Well, as I mentioned, I'm working on this piece about how parents' rights went so wrong. And I think it's really interesting to go state by state and watch what I think of as the backlash to the backlash as it plays out. And that, you know, you, you go through this initial period where suddenly you have, you know, people popping up, they're running for things like school board, and they're running on, you know, they're the anti-CRT candidate. And then it just keeps morphing, right? It's, they're worried about social and emotional learning, they're accusing teachers of indoctrinating kids, now it's gender ideology. And so first, you know, there's in, this initial part where, where local communities are just kind of stunned. And now we're, we're well into the backlash to the backlash. And what you're seeing is that not only are these communities defeating these sorts of candidates, but that they are coming together in coalitions that include the teachers' unions, but are not limited to them. And that is so key. They are assembling these, these broader-based coalitions that are starting to articulate a vision of why we have schools and what they should do and how we expect them to be treated by our elected officials. And to me, this is really exciting for precisely the reasons that that Jack was just describing, that, you know, on the one hand, part of the reason we're in this boat is that for so long, Democrats have wildly oversold what schools could do. And they have used this language, this kind of business language, anybody wants to know what I'm talking about, go to Miguel Cardona's Twitter feed. He is our current Secretary of Education, and it is like 
being in a 90s ad lib that he'll say something like, every kid deserves access to a school that will enable them to compete in the 21st century economy. And you're like, really? Really? That like, that's what we're going to say. But now, you know, now the fear is like, well, okay, Democrats seem to be waking up to the fact that that message is not going to sell, especially at a time when our public schools are on fire. But do you hear them saying much else? In fact, they seem to think that maybe the strategy is just not to say anything at all. That's terrible, too. And so that's why I think that it is absolutely essential that we we look at places where you have these grassroots coalitions forming to defend local public schools. And I'm, I'm thinking about a state like New Hampshire where this is playing out, but it's happening everywhere. And then in these urban communities that you're talking about, places like Chicago, and Philly, where public school advocates and their coalition partners, the unions, have for many years been making a much broader, bolder argument for for why we need schools. And that is, that's where Brandon Johnson comes out of. I had the good fortune to hear him speak at an AFT convention several years ago. And it was at that weird moment when we were starting to see candidates come out of nowhere like an AOC and the members at the convention were really excited about they liked AOC and they liked Bernie Sanders and of course the leadership of the union that's not where they were at all right that they they view this stuff as you know the goal is to get a seat at the table and then you keep your seat at the table and the incumbent is your friend because the incumbent has access and Brandon Johnson got up and he gave this barn burner of a speech because he has a much bolder, broader vision of why we have unions. They are the largest single organized force in most of our communities. And so we do not need them making, you know, a very narrow technocratic case about pay raise steps. And we need them to be making this this bigger case that, you know, doesn't speak in these very sort of narrow bureaucratic terms that people don't know what they're talking about, right? Like, like make, make the case for public education, because that's actually, it's the grassroots stuff that's going to rebuild the sort of larger democratic narrative. And and boy, do we need it right now. I feel like people are really waking up to what Jack was talking about, that not only is public education our sort of last remaining public institution, but that it's so key to the functioning of our democracy and that our leaders have lost the ability to make a stirring, compelling case for that. And they need us to remind them of that. They need Brandon Johnson to remind them of that. And my hope is that if they can see that actually this is a winning strategy, then maybe they will finally start to see the error of their ways. To Jennifer's point, I think that one of the things that the Democratic Party needs to really think carefully through is how to assemble a coalition of folks whose interests no longer converge in the way that they once might have, right? How do you advance the interests of folks who really haven't seen a lot from the Democratic Party for the past couple of decades, despite continuing to, when they do show up for elections, to vote for Democrats? And I think that education is actually one of those areas. So in the same way that 
the right has opportunities to continue to mobilize support from the grassroots as well as potentially to bring in middle-of-the-road conservatives or folks who may identify as centrist Democrats but who lean more independent and occasionally vote for Republicans in the same way that the GOP has a potential to assemble a coalition there by you know, playing into some of the fears of members of the white middle class, particularly those who live in, you know, leafy white suburbs and believe that schools are the way that they're going to maintain their their economic privilege as well as their racial privilege, and to tie those voters to working class, in many cases rural voters who um, are going to show up for Donald Trump in the next presidential election. There are opportunities for the Democratic Party to try to advance the interests of the working poor, the working class, the lower middle class, the middle class, and, you know, theoretically, maybe the kinds of elite Democratic voters who have, in many ways, been the focus of uh, the Democratic Party for the past couple of decades. And it's it's through education, but it, it, it requires you know, I, we've now used this phrase broad and bold, but it requires staking out a broader and bolder vision for what education is. Education is not simply the acquisition of credentials for the purpose of social mobility. Education is not simply a private good that enables individuals to get ahead in a market. Education is not merely just whatever can be measured by student standardized test scores. All of this has been implicit or explicit in the messaging and policies of Democrats at the state and federal level for the past several decades, right? Education is about so many things, right? It's about the survival of communities, right? It's about honoring the fact that everybody in this country is a member of our democracy. It's about, you know, doing right by young people from all racial, economic, ethnic, and linguistic subgroups, right? It's about trying to build the capacity of all citizens to participate in a democratic republic. It's about a lot of things, right? And the fact that we do it for everyone in this country, that we do it in a way that isn't entirely equitably funded, but, you know, certainly gets better and better year after year. It's not entirely adequately funded, but again, better and better year after year with, you know, obvious threats to the to the contrary of that point. You know, I think that making a case for public education as if we didn't have it already, as if we haven't taken it for granted for the past hundred years, is a powerful way of assembling a coalition that recognizes the needs that all of us have, right, left, right, and center for a way to advance our shared interests as a society, to advance the public good, to advance the interests of the historically underserved while also serving everybody else, much in the way that a program like Social Security does. You know, in some ways, I guess what I'm saying is that in the way that the Democrats have embraced the Green New Deal, that they can embrace an educational New Deal and that that can be really galvanizing for Democrats from all walks of life. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, a, a really important point. The real problem with public education is not that public education is is failing. It's the degree to which it's a segregated system that too often provides separate and unequal education to poor students, particularly poor students of color, which is not a failing of public education. It's a failing of a segregated municipal 
housing system that reproduces racialized class inequality in our society. And one key thing, I think the key thing that the reform movement maybe does at an ideological level is like fundamentally is mystifying and then reframing the problem and thus also the solutions to those problems. It's so true. And I mean, I, to me, that was like the really like inspiring thing about the story of Chicago that you're, you're seeing in live time the failure of that effort, right? That the sort of mystification, people aren't buying it anymore. You would be really hard pressed to find people in Chicago who believe that the answers to all the problems plaguing Chicago right now are more charter schools, right? Because they have been on the receiving end of that project for decades now. Charter schools are all over Chicago. No, you know, no one is buying that. The Democrats are going to have to come up with with some other story to tell. So why not? Why not make it a good one? Jack Schneider and Jennifer Berkshire, thank you both very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. 